Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast in collaboration with the Conservative Yeshiva in Jerusalem. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about the Conservative Yeshiva, please visit conservativeyeshiva.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Daily Daf Differently. My name is Rabbi Abby Sassler. Today we are studying Moed Katan, Daf Gimel, page 3. On our Daf today, the Gemara explores some of the legal thinking behind Shvi'it, the sabbatical year, what we often refer to as Shemitah. Yesterday we learned that one may water a field in certain cases on Chol HaMoed and during the sabbatical year, but the rabbis ask, why is watering a field permitted during the Shemitah year. Shemitah is modeled after Shabbat in many ways, and mashkin, watering a field, to the rabbis, sounds awfully close to the category of either sowing seeds, zorea, preparing the land, or plowing, choresh, which is also a way of preparing land for growth. Ah, but they concluded yesterday, Watering is not actually one of the avot milacha, the central primary labors, that are not permitted during Shemitah. It's a toleda, a secondary labor, which, as our daf begins, we learn toledot lo asarachmana. The secondary labors of Shemitah were not prohibited by God. The Torah only prohibits the very few core primary labors of Shemitah. After some discussion of which labors those are that are prohibited on Shemitah, the Talmud turns to the question of timing. Towards the top of Daf Gimel Amud Bet 3b, the Talmud brings the question of exactly when the laws of Shemitah begin. How close to Rosh Hashanah of the seventh year is it permissible to plow the land? The Talmud quotes the first Mishnah of Masechet Shvi'it, Remember that Masechet Shvi'it, which is in Seder Zra'im, only has Yerushalmi Talmud associated with it. So the Babylonian Talmud brings the Mishnayot from Zra'im in different places. And here, the first Mishnah is quoted. Kiditnam, Admatai Choshin Bisdei Ilan Erev Shvi'it. The Mishnah teaches, until when may one plow in a field of trees on Erev Shvi'it, on the eve of the seventh year? Beit Shammai Omrim calls man la pri, the whole time that it is good for the fruit. Beit Hillel Omrim ad ha'atzeret, that is, until Shavuot. And the Mishnah continues, krovin divrei elu, lihiot kedivrei elu. The words of these are very similar to the words of these, meaning that the two opinions of Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel are very close. As Rashi explains, Beit Shammai's opinion that one can plow as long as it is good for the fruit of the sixth year is actually quite close to Shavuot, which is Beit Hillel's opinion. One may only plow through the time that plowing is actually good for the fruit that has been growing in the sixth year. And that is actually close to Shavuot. The Mishnah continues, 
until when may one plow a grain field on Ereshvi? Mi shetichlei halacha v'chol zman shebnei adam choshim lita mikshaot umidliot. One can plow a grain field until the ground moisture ceases, and as long as people continue to plow in order to plant squash and gourd plants. Rabbi Shimon Omerim Cain, if that's the case, then the Torah gave a measure to each person individually. Rabbi Shimon has a really important point. People plow squash and gourd plants at different times. How is that a useful time measurement? It's not standardized at all. Well, here is where things get interesting. Rabban Gamliel uveit dina nimnu al shnei prakim alalu uvitlu. Rabban Gamliel and his court voted about these different time measurements, and he nullified them. Basically, don't worry about it. All these specific times, these additional explanations of when you can plow, when you can't, are actually not necessary, says Rabban Gamliel. You can go ahead and plow way past Shavuot and way past when the gourds are planted for until all the way until Rosh Hashanah. So let's review. Rabban Gamliel, the son of the editor of the Mishnah, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, has nullified a ruling that Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai established. How does that work? We know this is not the appropriate way of things. The authority of previous generations always wins. Rabbis from later generations don't get to nullify previous generations' rulings. And the Gemara itself questions this. Rabbi Zeira said to Rabbi Abahu, or maybe Reish Lakish asked Rabbi Yochanan, Rabban Gamliel uveit dino heichi matzo mivatle takanata. How does Rabban Gamliel and his court annul a ruling of Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel? A court cannot abolish a ruling of an earlier court unless it is superior in wisdom and in number. And here comes my favorite part of this particular discussion. Rabbi Abahu or Rabbi Yochanan, depending on who was the recipient of this question, comes up with an answer to explain. Amor, kachit nu Let's say that Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel made a condition with one another. Kol vatel. Anyone who wants to can come and abolish this ruling. The Gemara beautifully, retroactively changes the view and the statements of Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel. According to this response, Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel knew that agricultural patterns could change, and so they set it up from the start that in any generation, their ruling could be overturned. The Tosafot comment on this, saying that the two great schools wanted to save the people from the possibility of a big loss. Chashu lehefsed rabim, shaloyigramu ra'aleolam. They were concerned for a great loss. They didn't want to create bad in the world. This idea that Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel were smart enough and forward-thinking enough 
to allow rabbis in the future to overturn their laws seems to go along with the general principle of rabbinic philosophy. It reminds me of the story in Masachet Menachot, the famous one about Moshe who visits Rabbi Akiva's classroom. God sends Moshe into the future to see Rabbi Akiva teach, and Moshe falls faint when he doesn't understand a word of what Rabbi Akiva is teaching. He's relieved when he hears Rabbi Akiva say that what he's teaching is actually halacha Moshe misinai, it is the law of Moses at Sinai. In this story, the Talmud suggests that the teaching of later generations are exactly in keeping with the teaching of earlier generations. They are in keeping with the original Torah, and Rabbi Akiva's teachings are 100% authoritative because they are what Moshe was teaching too, even if Moshe doesn't recognize the teaching. The chain of tradition is in itself part of the plan. On our daf too, the Talmud retroactively has Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel giving over the authority to future generations to change the law. It's as if they are sitting in Rabban Gamliel's classroom and saying, oh, okay, that's actually exactly what we wanted. Rabbi Abahu and Rabbi Yochanan are stating a principle about the chain of tradition. The point is that Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel want us, want future generations to do what is best for the people of Israel. And they give future generations the permission to see themselves as the authority. A small example of the rabbinic system at work. This system, the chain of rabbinic authority, with each generation having the ability to do what is best for that generation, is actually at play on every single daf, the tongue. It's the beauty of the rabbinic language and the rabbinic system. And it's there on every single page if we were to look for it. To be continued. I'll look forward to learning with you again next week. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the open and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epichorus album One Bead, available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.